Beloved, I want you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Romans chapter 12. We're back in Romans. In Romans chapter 12, and we're going to look this morning, we're going to read this morning two of the most significant verses in this entire epistle. Two of the most significant verses in this entire epistle. So let's stand together and let's ask the Lord to prepare our hearts to make them soft and receptive, to make our minds to be attentive. And let's read these words together. This is the word of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray together. You can be seated. Father in heaven, It is good to come before you and to present ourselves before you, Lord God, so that you might speak to us through your holy word. So that your word might have its effect in us and it might change us and, and, and shape us and transform us as your people more and more into the image of your dear son and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, your word has... It, it, it just holds great promise for you people. And as we look at this text this morning, as we think about these words today, as we examine them and we exegete this text, God, I pray that the heart of the message will not be lost upon us. It's that we're not our own. And that we've been bought with a price. And that our lives don't belong to us anymore. Not that they ever really did. Father, I pray that as we just sit underneath your word, that your truth, Lord God, would peel away the falsehood and the lies and the layers of deception that people have, that, that we've heard from people, that we've gathered from this world, that we've gathered from the church even, about what it means to really follow Christ. I pray that you would make our eyes to see clearly, Father, what it is and how it is that we are called to come after Jesus. Father, I pray that you grant me grace and strength and power and wisdom. I pray that you would set a guard upon my lips and my tongue And that you give me the unction of the Holy Spirit so that I might speak in absolute and complete accordance with your will. And so that everything that I would say, Lord God, would be pleasing in your sight. And would be for the purpose that you design it for. I pray for this congregation. I pray for the people that are in these walls. I pray, Lord God, that we would hear these words and that they would, Father, they would affect us deeply. 
that they would not be mere words on a page, but they would be to us what they are, the very living word of Almighty God. And that, Lord, it would have a a great effect on us, on our souls, on our hearts, on our minds, on everything that we do. Father, help us today to be instructed by your Spirit so that in responding to your truth, we might bring forth fruit that's pleasing in your sight. We're grateful, Lord, for this time. We're grateful, Lord God, help us to take advantage of it to the fullest, I pray. In Christ's blessed name, I'm asking these things. Amen. Beloved, again, as we get back into these verses, into Romans this morning, I want to say this again, and I mean it, that these two verses are two of the most important verses in this entire epistle. If you go wrong here, you go wrong the rest of the way. These verses are that important. Now, at first, you might be thinking, that is a really bold statement, preacher. There have been some remarkable things that Paul has taught us, some awesome, breathtaking theology in these first 11 chapters. And so you're saying that these two verses, that they are that important. And I am telling you, unequivocally and unambiguously, yes, they are that important. These verses are that important. And I'm not overstating the fact. I'm not using pastoral hyperbole or or hype. They're that important. They're vital to our lives as Christians. And let me explain why. Okay? Let me explain to you why. Now, it's true. There's no doubt. Paul has been teaching us remarkable doctrine, remarkable divine truth in this epistle. Right? This is, we can say that that the book of Romans, without question, is the most thorough exposition of the gospel anywhere in the Bible, right? It is. It is the most thorough exposition of the gospel anywhere in the Bible. It's extraordinary teaching. But, beloved, it is more than just truth to be intellectually appreciated. It is more than just doctrine to be admired and affirmed. Christianity is more than agreement with intellectual truth. It is truth that is to be received, and it's truth that is to change your life. It's to be lived out. In other words, listen to me. Christianity is not just a way of belief. It's a way of life. Okay, I'm going to say it again. Christianity is not just a way of belief. It is a way of life. Beloved, a Christian's not somebody who just affirms the truths of the Christian faith intellectually. We must do that. It's important that we do that. But that's not all. Being a Christian involves more than than our minds. It involves our hearts. It involves our emotions. It involves the will. It involves our conduct. How we live. It encompasses the totality of who we are. You remember what Jesus said. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses himself for my sake shall find it. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't come into this world just to make a bunch of people who run around confessing, you know, I affirm these doctrines as being true without any consequent transformation in their lives. 
He came into this earth bringing salvation to us, Titus 2 says, and training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In other words, beloved, the doctrines of the Christian faith must lead to a changed life. It must lead to a godly life. True theology is applied theology. I'm going to say it again. True theology is applied theology. True Christianity is applied Christianity. Let me explain what I mean. It's not a perfect analogy, but it'll be helpful. When I was in college, I remember taking courses specifically for my major, okay? Specifically for my major, courses like this. Applied mathematics, applied physics, engineering and weapons applications, right? Now, what's the word there that is, that is common to all three of those classes? It's some form of the word applied or application, right? My major required me not merely to know math and physics in a, you know, intellectual, you know, theoretical sort of way. My major demanded, at least if I was going to get my, you know, certificate, it demanded that I be able to apply that knowledge to a particular situation. In other words, having an intellectual knowledge of these various things was not an end in itself. For that knowledge to be of any benefit to me, it had to be applied. It had to be put to good use toward a specific end. You with me? Are you with me? In our age, there are far too many people. And this is why this is important. In our age, there are far too many people who have just reduced the gospel to a set of facts to be affirmed, right? There are too many people that are Christians because they're not anything else. There are too many people that are Christian because I go to church, you know, on Sunday most of the time if I don't have something better to do. There are far too many people that have reduced the gospel to just a set of facts to be affirmed, just an intellectual agreement with gospel propositions, just an agreement to, uh, you know, acknowledgement of some truth, in many cases, incomplete ones, but whose life shows absolutely no evidence that that belief has done anything but fill up their heads because it hasn't changed their lives. There are far too many people who may acknowledge the facts of the gospel whose lives do not reflect their faith. True? True? They just give some kind of assent to it. Oh, I believe in Jesus. Oh, I believe that God exists. Oh, I believe that you have to believe in Jesus to go to heaven. You know, and... But that's all there is to it. There's no real evidence. Beloved, that's what we call easy believism. Cheap grace. It's not the Christianity of Scriptures. The Christianity of the Scripture, beloved, is not only informative, it's transformative. It's got, it's, it must bring us to faith, but that faith must transform us. 
It must be that way. And here's why. It's because the ver- of the very nature of what a Christian is. What is a Christian? What is a Christian? If I were to ask you that question, I would ask you to write it down. What would you say is a Christian? I'm going to tell you something. It's not someone who merely acquiesces to, to certain facts, but rather... Paul says this. This is the fundamental description of a Christian. If anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. He's a new creature. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. The fundamental definition, the fundamental description of a Christian is that he's a new creation. He's got new desires. He's got new affections. He's got a new way of thinking. He's got a new way of living. A Christian is somebody who has been born again. Who has been raised from spiritual death. Who has been redeemed by the blood of Christ through faith. Who's been forgiven of his sins and reconciled to God. And who is now indwelt by the Holy Spirit so that he might be empowered to live for the glory of God. He's not somebody that's just come around to a new way of thinking. Who, who, has, who has reformed his Sunday morning practices and now comes to church. He hasn't just come around to a new way of thinking, but he's been raised by God to a new life. That's what a Christian is. He or she is not what they once were. The old life is gone and a new life has come. Life in Christ. A Christian is somebody, and I think we sometimes fail to understand this, because, because we turn, we've turned the gospel not into the mercy and the, and the grace of God, but we've turned it into just do X, Y, and Z and you're in. But you, want to, you, need, you need to hear me when I say this. A Christian is somebody who has undergone the most profound change that anyone can experience. And you're looking at me with dull faces like you have no idea what I'm speaking about. Beloved, wake up. To be a Christian means you're no longer spiritually dead. You've been raised to new life. You've got new desires. You've got a new heart. Your entire life has changed. You're not what you once were. Some of us have been in Christ for so long, we've forgotten what we once were. And so the gospel's not that big a deal anymore. It's why we're sluggish and apathetic. It's why we're indecisive. It's why we reconcile in our minds things that we do and things that we think and things that we say that are not at all in keeping with Christ. And then we write it down under the idea of I'm struggling. I'm just in, I'm struggling right now. You know what struggling means? Struggling means I'm not even fighting my old life in, in, in the flesh. That's what struggling means. Fighting is fighting. Struggling is giving up. We have forgotten that being a new creature in Christ is something entirely different from what we used to be. A Christian, listen, is not what they once were. He or she is not what they once were. The old life is gone. 
You have been, if you're a Christian, profoundly transformed by the Spirit of God, or you're not a Christian. And if you're in Christ, what ought to be the operative, mo- the operative question of your life is this. Some of you, you're acting like you've heard, never heard this before. The operative question of your life ought to be this. How then am I to live? If I'm a new creature in Christ, if I've been transformed by the Spirit of the living God, how then am I to live in light of the fact that I'm no longer what I once was, but I'm now in Christ? How should I live? How do I walk out this new life in Christ? Because here's the thing, beloved. You know what, it not, what it's not? It's not automatic, spontaneous, or unthinking. You just don't fall into walking out this new life in Christ. It's not automatic. Think about your baby, when your kids you had, when your baby came out of the womb. Did he know how to speak and talk and clothe himself and feed himself? Did he? Of course not. You've got to learn how to walk in Christ, just like a baby has to learn how to walk and talk. Neither does a Christian instinctively just know how to walk out our union with Christ. What does it look like? What, what does it mean then? How do I live out this new nature? What's required of me? What is God speaking to me about? You know, somebody who's been born by the Holy Spirit and justified by the blood of Jesus through faith in his resurrection. Somebody who's no longer in Adam, but in union with Christ and raised to walk in the newness of life. How do I live? We need to be taught. We need to be instructed. We need to be exhorted. We need to be rebuked and corrected and trained in our new life in Christ. And that is what comprises the bulk of the remaining chapters here in Romans. How we actually live. These two verses set the stage for everything else that follows. What Paul does here in these first two verses is say... Look, man, here are the two non-negotiable essentials. Here are the indispensable principles of how we are now to walk in Christ. This is like the foundation. It's the foundation. The foundational approach to being a Christian, to living as a Christian. These two things, I'm going to tell you in these first two verses of Romans chapter 12, apart from them, there's no walking with Christ. That's what he's saying. Look what he says again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He's telling Christians basically this. Here it is in a nutshell. Look, man, here's what I'm saying to you. In full consideration of God's mercy to you. Every way that God has been merciful to you in the gospel. You now give your whole self to God in worship. You don't hold anything back. He gets it all. He owns every aspect of your life. You give it all to him. And it's the only reasonable, only spiritual response to the gospel. From here on out, do not. Do not be shaped. Do not be molded by the pattern of this world. Your mind must be renewed. You must have your mind transformed through the renewing and the revitalization of your mind by the word of God. The revitalization of your way of thinking. Then you'll discover what it means. You'll discover what it means 
to know God's good and pleasing and perfect will, and you will live in a way that pleases Him. But it all goes back to this. You've got to relinquish ownership of yourself, present yourself to God as a living sacrifice, and seek to have your mind renewed. That's where it starts. It's got to begin right there. This is the foundation of applied Christianity. These are the first principles of Christian living. This is the root of a life that is pleasing to God. The kind of life that adorns the gospel. The characteristic expectations of those who have been saved through faith in Jesus Christ. This is it. These are the first principles. And they should flow from genuine salvation. Now look, I want to make sure we understand this correctly. This is not God through Paul saying to us, do this and live. Do this and, 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 and save yourself. Rather, what it is is this. I have given you new life. I have saved you, so now live like this. You see the difference? Do you see the difference? These are vital verses, beloved. That's why I say to you that they have such importance and weight for our lives. Now here's the deal. We're only going to be able to consider the first verse this morning, okay? We're only going to be able to look at the very first verse today. So look with me first at Paul's urgent appeal. We'll just read all of verse 1 again. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now I want you to notice what Paul's doing here. Paul is, first of all, addressing, the, 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 this, addressing this exhortation to his brothers, isn't he? Right? You see that? He's talking to his brothers. He's talking to his brothers and his sisters in Christ. It's an inclusive term, right? For everybody who belongs to the family of faith. For everyone who's a child of God. For everyone who's heard the gospel and repented and believed on Christ as Savior and Lord and received new life. If you've done that, you are brothers. We are brothers and sisters together. We're brothers and sisters with the apostles and with everybody who's ever trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So here's what Paul's doing. Here's what Paul's doing. He's just coming alongside of me saying, look, I want you to understand something. I'm not going to ask you, I'm not commanding of you something that I am not myself doing. Okay, I'm not the one that says, hey, do as I say and not as I do. So I want you to do what I'm doing. I want you to be right there with me, brothers. I want you to, to be right there striving with me, striving alongside with me in applying the implications of the gospel to our lives. So this is not me just speaking down to you, right? I mean, Paul on occasion would, would use his authority as apostle, but he's not doing it here. He's getting down right next to his brothers and his sisters, you know, in Christ there in Rome. And he's saying, look, man, I'm right here with you. This is what we need to be doing. Second thing I want us to notice is this, is that use of the word therefore, right? You've heard me say this before. When you have a therefore, you need to find out what it's there for, right? Like there's a point to a therefore in scripture. What is it? Well, it points back to other things, right? In other words, here's what Paul is saying here. Paul is telling us, look, my, my appeal here is based on the truth. It's based on what I've been teaching in this letter. The whole thing. Everything that I've been talking to you about in this letter. Everything that I've unfolded to you in this letter about Christ. And about Christ, about God. And about Christ. And about fallen man. Right? And about the justification that God provides. 
and the propitiation that the Lord Jesus Christ has won through his blood and the reconciliation that you now have to God through the gospel and, you know, the, the truth of election and predestination, the, the, the calling unto salvation, the gift of the Holy Spirit, everything that I've been telling you about how you can't lose your salvation, that you know, you have a security that, that is, that is unbreakable because Christ's love for you is unbreakable. All that stuff that I've been saying to you, right? All the truth that I've been saying to you, that informs my appeal to you right now. I want you to think about all of those things as I make this appeal to you because it's rooted in, my appeal is rooted in careful consideration and sober contemplation of everything that God has given me to teach. Everything that you've received. In other words, Paul is saying, like, this isn't my idea. This isn't coming out of my mind. This exhortation is from God. And then I want you to see, third thing we need to see is the urgency of what Paul says here. This is very urgent. It's not an optional kind of thing. It's essential. It's not voluntary. It's compulsory. The word for appeal here in the Greek is the word parakaleo. Okay? Parakaleo. It is the same word that has the same root as the word paraclete. Anybody want to, anybody know who the paraclete is? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the paraclete. This word parakaleo, it means to come alongside of somebody and to urge them, to compel them, to entreat them, to encourage and exhort and implore them to a goal. But it's not optional one. It's not an optional. You must get there. It's to urge and compel them, exhort them, right? In other words, this is as serious as it gets. It's of utmost importance. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. I am urging you. I am begging you. I am pleading with you. I am encouraging you. I am exhorting you for your own good. I'm, I'm appealing to you, brothers, to present your bodies to God. That's the appeal. But what's the motivation behind that appeal, right? What's the motivation behind that appeal? And Paul tells us, it's the mercies of God. Again, look at this verse. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies. By the mercies of God to present your bodies. The ground for his appeal It's God's mercy, but it's not God's mercy in general. I want to make sure we understand that. It's not God's mercy in general. Or God's mercy in theory. But specifically, His mercies to you and me personally. That's the idea here. The manifestation of His mercy to each one of us. In other words, our motivation to presenting our bodies to God, and we'll put some meat on that bone in a moment, The motivation of that is very personal. It doesn't come from, a, from an academic, detached, or, or disconnected view of mercy in general. That, that won't do. Paul means for us to consider the vast mercies that we have experienced as Christians. 
the way in which God has act, actively demonstrated His mercy in our lives. Here's what that means. Paul means for us to think about this in very personal terms. Consider. Consider personally just how God intervened in your life when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. When you were following the prince of the power of the air and you were in deliberate rebellion to God and you were walking according to your own sinful desires and you did not even give him a thought. When you were perishing and running headlong down the path to eternal wrath and ruin in hell, God intervened personally in your life. Personally. Though you weren't seeking Him. He was seeking you. Pursuing you. And you probably didn't even know it. But when it seemed right to Him, He made you to be born again, born from above, and He raised you from your spiritual death. You didn't ask Him to. You didn't do anything to earn that. You in no way... We're giving some evidence that there was a seed of something within you because there wasn't. God made you to be born again. He raised you from your spiritual death. He did this for you personally. You weren't just part of the batch that God raised from the dead. It was you personally. He led you to a place. He arranged the circumstances. He put a Bible in your hands or he put a person into your life by which you heard the good news of the gospel for the first time. And you might have heard it a million times. But when you were born again, you actually really heard it for the first time. You heard how God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to provide salvation, not just for sinners in general, for you. How he lived a life that was perfect, that you didn't live, but he did it for you. How he died on the cross to pay specifically for your sins, being forsaken in your, you know, in your place, absorbing the wrath of God against your ungodliness for you, for your specific sins. Beloved, for a catalog of sins that was unique to you. And had your name at the top. Property of. He died for you and he was raised for you on the third day. And you heard that gospel. And you did the only thing that somebody born of the Spirit can do. You believed in Christ and you were saved. And it was all of God's mercy. But he didn't stop there, did he? Oh no, you, you heard how through faith in Christ you've been reconciled to God. You got peace with the king of the universe. 
How you've been brought out of the dominion of sin and Satan, and you've been given freedom and power to love and to serve God. How you've been joined to Christ in his life and his burial, his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and you've been raised out of spiritual death to walk in the newness of life, right? You've been made brand new. All the stain and the, and the guilt of your sin is gone forever. You've been changed and transformed by the power of His grace. He has put His Holy Spirit in you. He's led you into holiness, into godliness, and who guides you into that fullness of new life in Christ. Man, you heard how you could never, you could never ever fall away from God's grace because you were chosen to receive it. You were chosen for this salvation before the foundation of the world. God has foreknown you. He's predestined you for salvation. He's called you to faith. He's justified you in Christ. He'll glorify you with himself. And all things right now in this present evil age work together for your good. But why is that? Just because things happen to bounce my way? No, it's the mercy of God. Nobody can bring a charge against you that will damn you. Because God's justified you. Right? No one can condemn you because Christ died for you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. All of that is bound up and more in those phrase, that phrase, the mercies of God. God has given all that to you personally. Personally. Not a thing that you've earned, not a thing that you deserve. He just gives it to you. Personally. Again, it's personal. Now, in light of this, Paul says, present your body to God and live for him in his glory. Relinquish your ownership of yourself that you never really had. In fact, I'm just going to say this as a side note, but here's the truth. Here's, here's reality. From the moment that you're born till the moment that you die, you're a slave to somebody. Are you hearing me? That, that might not be appealing. You might not want to amen, I'm a slave. Maybe not. Okay, well, here's the truth. From the moment that you're born till the moment that you die, you're a slave to somebody. You are either a slave to sin and to Satan and to your own flesh. Or you're a slave of God a slave to God, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're either or, but you're never not a slave. You're never not a slave. It's just that slavery to God is sonship and daughtership and life unending and love and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit, right? Paul's saying, I want you to think about personally how you've experienced the mercy of God if you're a Christian. And here's why. It's because the only compelling and convincing motivation for you and me and for every true Christian to, to relinquish the totality of who we are to God is the mercies of God. Only a careful consideration and sober contemplation of the mercies of God will produce that all-compelling passion within your soul to present yourself to God and to live chiefly and supremely for His glory. 
Paul is saying, I'm telling you, man, you've got to devote yourself, just as I have, the whole of your life to God, to worship and serving Him, to living a life of holy obedience to Him, to honoring Him and pleasing Him, not to gain favor with Him. Not to gain favor with Him, but because you have already been highly favored. Not to receive mercy, but because you've received mercy. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies to God. Okay, so what does that mean? What does that mean practically, right? I mean, there's not like somewhere that we go where we turn in our bodies to God, right? So what does that mean in a practical sense? What does that entail? It's time to put the meat on the bone here. Okay, let's do it. Paul answers that question by using an analogy. Look at what he says. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Underline that word sacrifice in your Bible if you underline in your Bible. This is the analogy that he's using. He gives us a definition of what it means to present our bodies by employing the symbol of sacrifice, right? Now, here's the thing, okay? The Roman church is made up of Jews and of Gentiles, right? And both of that, those groups, okay, who are now one in Christ, they would have been familiar with the concept of sacrifices, right? The Jewish Christians could remember, you know, sacrifices in the temple. Probably some of those guys had gone and offered sacrifices in the temple. The Gentile Christians, the Roman Christians, you know, the Roman Empire, look, it, every city had its temples and shrines where animal sacrifices would be offered to the gods, right? And a sacrifice... You know, how did a sacrifice work in those days? Well, it's not like you cut a piece of the animal off and took it to the altar and threw it on there. Okay, we're not grilling things. Okay, that's not what was going on. When you offered a sacrifice, you put the whole animal on there. You offered everything to the deity that was being worshipped. Now, sometimes, sometimes the worshiper or the priest, they would receive something back from the altar, right? But the offering was initially to be given to whatever deity was being worshipped, to do with as he pleased, right? So here's what Paul is saying. In essence, he's saying, look, just as a sacrifice, the sacrifices that you see, just as they are, you know, offered up in totality to a deity, you are to offer up in totality everything that you are to God. In fact, Paul is actually using here Technical language that was used to speak of the sacrificial system. That word to present means to yield or surrender up or to place at the disposal of another or to fully relinquish for another person's use to put it all on the altar, right? So what's the idea? Paul's saying, look, You're not presenting yourself to physically die. You are presenting yourself and everything that you are and all of your faculties to God as someone who now has been made alive from the dead, who has been raised from death to life in Christ. Therefore, a living sacrifice, you present everything that you are to God. What does that look like? Well, you present your mind to him. You present your mind to him. When you present your body, you present your mind to Him, the whole of yourself, what you think, what you believe, how you reason. 
You present your mind to God with the determination that you will believe everything that you read in God's word, uh, that you hear properly exposited from God's word, and you will evaluate everything in light of his wisdom. You present your mind to him, not for idle curiosity and for wasting and for, you know, employing in areas and arenas that are worthless. You present your mind to God. You present your eyes and your ears, what we look at. What we gaze upon. You set a covenant with your eyes, like Job. You protect what you look at. You be careful about what captures your attention. And how you look at something. You protect your ears, what you listen to. What you receive in the ear gate. You take charge of the stuff that you hear because what you hear will become embedded in your soul. Oh, that's not true. Want to bet? Want to bet? I'm not affected by that. Yes, you are. In fact, the very fact that you can say, I'm not affected by looking at tawdry and, and, and wicked and vile things or hearing vile, wicked and tawdry things. I'm not affected by that proves you have been deeply affected. We need to be a lot more careful about how we employ our eyes and our ears. I, I think about it. It's ridiculous. I'm, I'm 55 now, right? I grew up in the 80s. 70s and 80s, emblazoned in my mind, I can't get rid of them, are the lyrics to more songs than I can count. I turn on, if I flip by Steve FM, this is not, by the way, this is not like a testimony for Steve FM. If I flip on a Steve FM, I can sing every single word. Talk about a waste of brain power. It means you present your tongue to the Lord. How you use it. The purpose for which you speak. You use it for good. You use it for speaking the truth in love. For edifying and for encouraging. For admonishing and for correcting. For speaking gospel truth, for praying and praising and, and singing to God. That's what you use it for. That's what you use your tongue for. Not gossip, not slander, not speculation, not spreading stories. Well, that's not fun. You better think about what's real joy and what isn't. It's how you use your hands and your feet. What do you put your hands to? What do you give your efforts to? The hands are a picture of your effort. What do you give it to? What do you expend your energies for? What holds the greatest priority in your life, you know, for, 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 for what you do with your hands? Do you actually use your hands to make a living? To earn 
to provide so that you might have something to share with somebody in need? Or are you slothful and lazy? Do you use your hands? Do you do whatever work that is before you, as before the Lord? Or do you think it's insignificant? And so a lesser effort is, is, is okay in the eyes of God. You hearing me? Where you, how do you use your feet? Where do your feet take you? For what purpose? Why do you go where you go? Why do you spend your weekends the way you spend them? Why do you spend your days the way you spend your days? How many vacations does one person need? Seriously. Your sexuality. Man, if you're struggling with pornography, there's that word struggle again. How about you fight it and quit? Oh my gosh, I can't believe he said that. Yeah, I'm saying it because it's a problem. In our society, it's a problem. And I'm not stupid enough to imagine it's not a problem here. Stop it. Just quit. You don't need a thousand different ways to do it. You need to hear God, what he says, repent and quit. Well, I need counseling. No, you don't. You just need to quit. The Holy Spirit's your counselor. Let him counsel you to quit. Ladies, just saying this. Don't get upset at me. I'm just saying it. Be modest because of God. Not don't, don't, modest is hottest. That is such whack thinking. I've heard that. Well, modest is hottest. Okay, so I need to be modest so guys think I'm hot. That's stupid. No, really it is. Be modest because, you know what? God commands it of you. Your true beauty shouldn't just be the outside, the plating of hair and the putting on of makeup and the wearing of earrings. Your beauty ought to be where? On the inside. Sexuality, listen. Sexuality is a good thing. Fornication is sin. Sexuality is a good thing. Only in submission to God's commands and in alignment with His purpose and His design. Are you hearing me? Our desires, our energy, our physical gifts and skills, academic abilities, ambitions, plans. I could go on and on, but I hope you're getting the point. All of it needs to be surrendered to the Lord and presented to Him as a living sacrifice for His use, for His praise, and for His glory with nothing held back. And why? Here's why. Because you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. There's nothing about you or I that is autonomous or independent. Nothing. All of us belongs to Him. And it's exceedingly practical, practical, isn't it? Isn't it? You remember what Paul said in Romans 6, verses 12 through 14. If you don't, I'll remind you. 
Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members as sins to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death into life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. Now that's, we would all affirm that, right? Yes? It's easier to affirm, beloved than it is to do, isn't it? Are you presenting yourself as a living sacrifice to God? Are you relinquishing all your rights to yourself, to Him? Again, that's not not an effort to win salvation, okay? But it must necessarily flow from a life that has been saved. Do you see that? That's important to see. Look, Christ has already suffered the sacrifice, uh, has already offered, I mean, the sacrifice uh, for our sins, to satisfy divine justice and to justify us and to reconcile us to God, that can't be repeated. But in light of that great salvation, those who have been raised from spiritual death and made alive to God, we must present ourselves willingly, deliberately, and thoroughly to the one who saved us. In fact, that word there, present, is in the aorist tense. It describes an action that is taken that is decisive and it is determinative. Let me say that again. It speaks of an action that is decisive and determinative. It's decisive. It's a definite act on our part. We make a conscious, wholehearted, deliberate and intelligent presentation of ourselves to God. Now that doesn't mean that we'll never fail in that regard. It doesn't mean that we'll never never mess it up. One one you know guy has said, you know, the problem with living sacrifices is they keep crawling off the altar. Right? I'm not saying that we'll never do it wrong or that that we won't mature in our understanding of the Lordship of Christ or become aware of areas in our lives that, you know what, I should have yielded this to him, but I haven't yielded it to him, so I'm going to yield it to him now. That'll happen. Certainly we're going to mature in our understanding of what it means to present the whole of ourselves to God. But the idea is this, is that when you become a Christian... The essential and the non-negotiable response that mercy demands in that moment, not like five years down the road, but in that moment, what it demands is this. I'm not my own. I belong fully and finally to God. I'm not autonomous. He has purchased me. I belong to him. He's my Lord and he's my master. And my life and everything that it encompasses is wholly offered up to him. And it belongs to him now and forever. And that's it. Now, I might learn later on what that means even more, but right as the very fundamental essence of my life, it doesn't belong to me anymore. He says, Paul does, he exhorts us to to live our new lives in Christ as living sacrifices, wholly given to God. He says to do it in a manner that is holy and that's acceptable to God. What does that mean? Holy is, what does that word mean? It just means to be set apart. It means to be consecrated to God. To be set apart from the ways of this fallen world, from common, irreverent, fleshly, ungodly, and mundane living. To be set apart to God. To pursue godliness and righteousness. There should be an evident, unmistakable distinction between our lives as the children of God and the children of the devil. That's the idea. 
And that kind of life, Paul says, is acceptable to God. Literally in the Greek, that word is well-pleasing. It is well-pleasing to God. When we present ourselves to Him as living sacrifices, when we consecrate ourselves to Him for His, for His use alone and for the pursuit of Christ's likeness, that is very well-pleasing to God. That kind of life is well-pleasing to Him. That kind of life pleases God. Now, I remember back in 2014 when we had, you know, some turmoil in this church. We went through the great split, you know, of 2014. And one of the things that someone accused me of at that time was that I was misrepresenting and undermining the gospel and that I was beating the sheep because I said to you that Christians could displease God. I was undermining the gospel. I was beating the sheep by saying that you could displease God. And this was his reason. He said to me this. He said, because of Christ, God is always pleased with me, however I live and whatever I do. And my response to him was to say a couple of things. The first thing I said to him was this, is that, brother, you are operating in a half-truth. You are operating in a half-truth. It is true that clothed with the righteousness of Christ that we are eternally acceptable to Him before God. But that does not mean that everything that we do in this body of flesh is now pleasing to Him. That is an ignorant and an unstable twisting of Scripture. And it invariably leads to antinomianism, to lawless living. And if you continue in that line of thinking, what it reveals is an unregenerate heart. And it will lead you to your soul's destruction. He didn't like that a whole lot. But it's true. And then I asked him these questions. I said, if that's the case, then I would like for you to explain to me why it is that Hebrews 12 is in the Bible. I want you to explain to me why it is that the chapter on discipline is included in the Scripture if nothing that we do in this body of the flesh could possibly be displeasing to God because of Christ. Why is that chapter there? Also, why are Christ's letters to the churches in Revelation recorded for us? Why are they even necessary if everything that we do is pleasing to God? Because it's seen in Christ. Or why does Paul tell us, walk as children of the light? For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern. Try to figure out. Try to understand what is pleasing to the Lord. Ephesians 5 verses 8 through 10. And after I said those words, the conversation took a, you know, a detour. And we never actually got back to that. But beloved, Scripture is very clear that we can live in a way that is pleasing to God and a way that's not. In fact, you can add to the words that I've just quoted, for instance, Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, where he says, And so, 
From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Or First Thessalonians chapter 4, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Or even in this letter to the Romans, toward the end of Paul's application of the gospel to our lives, he writes in Romans chapter 14, verse 18, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God. Whoever serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God. It's the same word, well-pleasing. Whoever serves Christ in this way is well-pleasing to God. God didn't give us new life in Christ so that we could live however we want and everything's good. What kind of gospel even is that? Think about it. What kind of good news is that? It's not the gospel that Paul describes to Titus as being the one that renounces ungodliness, teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled and upright and godly and purifies us for good works. A gospel that, that, that says, well, you're a new person, a new being in Christ, but you can go on living just like you used to. That's not the gospel, man. That's a no gospel. I mean, think about this. What pleasure does somebody who says he loves God but hates his brother bring to God? Who can picture God in heaven saying, oh, look at this, my son, who loves me, but who hates his brother. How pleasing he is to my spirit. None of us. How pleasing is it to God, someone who claims the mercy of God, but doesn't love and serve his wife or the wife who claims to receive the mercy of God, but doesn't respect and honor and submit to her husband. Or parents who don't raise their children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. How pleasing to God is somebody that can articulate all the facts of the gospel, but never lifts a finger to serve the people of God or to witness to a neighbor who doesn't extend forgiveness or doesn't guard his heart or isn't faithful in corporate or private worship or doesn't bear someone's burdens with him or refuses to honor God with the first fruits of what he's been given or who does not walk in the good works that God has prepared before him. How pleasing is that person to God? Beloved, as Paul says, we know that while we are at home in this body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. I would. So whether we're at home or away, he says, we make it our aim. We make it our aim to please him. Paul is saying, look, man, present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Live in a way that pleases him. Live in a way that honors him. Live in a way that adorns the gospel. Live in a way that shows you're a recipient of the mercies of God and not just somebody who's heard about them. How do you do that? Look at verse 9 in chapter 12 here, assuming you've still got your Bibles open. Look at what he says. Paul says, let love be genuine. Boom. 
Abhor what is evil, hold fast what is good. Boom. Love one another with a brotherly, brotherly affection. Boom. Outdo one another in showing honor. Boom. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Boom. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospi- hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. And he goes on. That's how you do it. These and more, these are the things, such things as please the Lord. And we can and we must seek to please him. And who's given us such mercy in Christ. And let me just say this really quickly. You know, beloved, there's been a tendency in the church in the last few years to try to like turn discipleship into heroic, epic adventure where, you know, you're like Aragorn and, and you've got your little side buddies, Gimli and Jimli and whatever the other guy's name is, right? Like you just got to go do something great for God. You got to be, that's how you show that you've presented yourself to God. That's hogwash. That is total hogwash. Presenting yourself as a living sacrifice to God does not demand some great act of allegiance, some great act of devotion, some great act. You know, that, that everybody can see and applaud for you doing. It doesn't require that, you know, you sell everything you have and become a missionary or you become a preacher or even that you suffer martyrdom. It may mean that for some, but not for everybody. Presenting your body to God as a living sacrifice, presenting the wholeness of all you are to God as a living sacrifice, you do that. The way that it's done is in the ordinary arenas of everyday life. You don't have to do something awesome. Something that, that other people will, you know, people write books about or something. No, you don't. You present your body to God as a living sacrifice by dying to yourself and living for God in your home and in your workplace and with your friends and at school and in your communities and with the people of God and in your ordinary life. That's how you do it. We were talking, I think, I don't know if it was in Bible study or if it was just at home. No, I think it might have been in Bible study. I don't know where it was. But John made the comment, and I, 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 I tend to agree with him, is that, you know, sometimes it's a lot easier to lose your life in the act of martyrdom than to die every single day to yourself in order to honor and serve God and to serve other people. And I'm not going to say that that's like, you know, that is an absolute truth. I'm not saying that. But it's something to think about, isn't it? Isn't it? Rather than going out in a blaze of glory, right? Maybe, maybe God's calling and us presenting ourselves to him is that you die a thousand deaths. Every single day. And most of them nobody notices. Except God. Listen to these words from J.I. Packer. He wrote in his book, Rediscovering Holiness, these words. He said, The secular world never understands Christian motivation. Faced with the question of what makes Christians tick, unbelievers maintain that Christianity is practiced only out of self-serving purposes. They see Christians as fearing the consequences of not being Christians. Religion is fire insurance. 
or feeling the need of help and support to achieve their goals, religion as a crutch, or wishing to sustain a social identity, religion as a badge of respectability. No doubt, all these motivations can be found among the membership of churches. It would be futile to dispute that. We know people like that, right? But just as a horse brought into a house is not thereby made human, so a self-seeking motivation brought into the church is not thereby made Christian. Nor will holiness ever be the right name for religious routines that are thus motivated. From the plan of salvation, I learn that the true driving force in authentic Christian living is and ever must be not the hope of gain, but the heart of gratitude. The heart of gratitude. He goes on to say, you who know this mercy in your lives must show yourselves truly grateful for it. You, let me read that again. You who know this mercy in your own lives must show yourselves truly grateful for it by the thoroughness of your commitment to God henceforth. This thoroughness is your holiness. For holiness means giving your all to God as God has given, is giving and will give his all to you. And this thoroughness will please God for it will show your appreciation and your affection for him. Presenting ourselves to God is an act of love and gratitude for the great mercies that we've received. And last, Paul tells us, it is our spiritual worship. Look at this whole verse again with me again. Let's just read it all. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship paul says presenting yourself to god it's your spiritual worship it's a phrase that literally means it is your logical or it is your reasonable act of worship is the most logical thing you can do the word for spiritual here that's translated spiritual is the word logikos from which we get the word logic which can also be figuratively used to mean spiritual so in other words, here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, man, in light of what God has mercifully done for you, the only real logical response, the only thing that makes sense, the only thing that's rational, the only reasonable and truly spiritual response is then to give yourself completely and totally to him. It just follows. It just follows that if the Lord has given himself to us and for us, that we should respond in kind. It's logical. It's spiritual. Give yourself to God. And then second, he says... This is your act of worship to God. Now that word there that's used for worship is a word that was used to describe the service of the Old Testament priests in the temple. As they were scurrying around in the temple, you know, the Old Testament priests, everything that they did, every act that they performed, everything they put their hand to, what? It was, it was an act of worship. It was worship to God. And so Paul is saying this, presenting yourself in this way, not only does it make sense, but you present yourself so that everything that you do is an act of worship to God. 
Now, here's what he's telling us. We like, to, we like to keep worship in a nice little compact bow, right? We like to tie a bow around. Like, worship for us is 1030 to 1230, sometimes 1240 for having the Lord's Supper. But that's what that is on Sunday. And then 630 to 8 on Wednesday, and that's worship. And Paul is saying, that's wrong. That is corporate worship, but that's not the whole of worship. Worship is comprehensive. That's what he's saying here. It's not just the, quote, spiritual things, meeting with God in word and prayer and corporately worshiping with the people of God or the like. It's more than that. It's 24-7. The way I love my wife is worship to God. The way I love my kids is an act of worship to God. The way I love my neighbor or my enemy is an act of worship to God. It may be a good act of worship. It may be a poor act of worship. It's an act of God. It's an act of worship. Seeking or granting forgiveness is an act of worship. What I speak, what I say, what I'm thinking is an act of worship. My entertainment that I give myself to, the recreation that I pursue, it's an act of worship. Serving somebody is an act of worship. Using my gifts and my abilities is an act of worship. Cleaning the house, mowing the lawn, you know, sweeping the floor, washing clothes, act of worship. Washing dishes, act of worship. All of life is to be lived for the glory of God and as an act of worship. This is all-inclusive. That's what Paul is getting at. It's like what he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do all the glory of God. Wherever you go, whatever you do, all of your life is an act of worship to God. Is it pleasing? Is it a pleasing act of worship? I'm almost finished. Stay with me. John Calvin understood the nature of worship in all of life. And he said these words, and they're so good. He said, we're not our own. Therefore, let not our reason nor our will sway our plans and deeds. We're not our own. Let us therefore not set it as our goal to seek what is convenient for us according to the flesh. We're not our own. And so far as we can, let us therefore forget ourselves and all that is ours. Conversely, we belong to God. Let us therefore, let us live for him and die for him. We belong to God. Let his wisdom and his will therefore rule all our actions. We belong to God. Let the parts of our lives accordingly strive toward him as our only lawful goal amen beloved i don't have any application for you this morning you know why because the verse itself is the application do you hear what god is saying to you through paul have you received the mercies of god through the Lord Jesus Christ. In truth. If you have. From a heart of gratitude. For the mercies of God. Present yourself. Body and soul. Everything that you are. To God. Call upon him. Pray to him. Present your all to him. And may I suggest that you let the words 
of Francis Havergal be your guide. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of Thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for Thee. Take my voice And let me sing always, only for my King. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from Thee. Take my silver and my gold. Not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as Thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it Thine. It shall no longer be mine. Take my heart. It is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord. I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself. And I will be ever only all for thee. Let's pray together. Lord God, your words through the Apostle Paul in this text are absolutely and undeniably direct. They're direct. It is a very clear exhortation, earnest urging. to live in accordance with the gospel mercies that we have received in Christ. To present ourselves to you as those who have been purchased to present to you our new life in Christ so that you might direct and guide it. To present ourselves, Lord God, to you as those who have been raised from spiritual death, who have trusted in Christ, who have been adopted into the family of God because we have been justified, because our sins have been atoned for by the blood of Jesus. Because we have been indwelt with the Holy Spirit who lives in us, who gives us, Lord God, just who makes everything new. And so it should be the desire of our hearts Not merely with our lips and with our words, but really the earnest desire of our hearts to present everything that we are to you. And if that, you know, somehow gives pause to our hearts, if 
we want to argue against that or if, Lord, there's some kind of, I don't know, underlying desire that says, I'll give this, but I can't give that. God, I'm praying that you would move in the heart of such an individual to bring them to true repentance and obedience to you. To believe the gospel and to act in accordance with it. That's really what this is about. If we're Christians, there ought to be evidence of it. And in order for us to be able to fulfill the commands that we find in the rest of of this letter to the Romans, we've got to begin by giving our all, everything that we are, to you, Lord. Your commandments are not grievous to us, the Apostle John said. So if they are, we need to ask ourselves why. And we need to deal with ourselves honestly, before your face, before we go any further in this book, so that we do not miss the riches that are before us. So God, I'm asking you to do in the heart of every person here today exactly what needs to be done and apply your word in the way that is pleasing in your sight. And for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.